Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Pricing. Uh, I'll come back to it, but it's staying very high. You know, thirty dollars in Europe and thirty dollars in Asia. And I'll come back to that because there's some macro stuff going on in Europe. But the big news in the U.S. was uh, releasing fifty million barrels from the petroleum reserve, which really didn't have too much impact on the price of oil. Um, I think uh, the price of gasoline is, is a political issue for the Biden administration and for the midterm elections, which now are, uh, I guess we could say they're 11 months away, 11 and a half months away. If you took the poll numbers that the Biden administration has and you applied it to other midterm elections, the Republicans would would pick up 100 seats. So they they wind up going from being three seats behind to having a big, big, big majority. I'm sure that all that's going to change before November, the first Tuesday, November 22. But gasoline prices aren't helping. I don't think release from petroleum reserves uh, in the U.S. or coordinated with other countries is really going to have too much impact on the price of oil. Obviously, it's not a positive, but I, I don't think it's going to make that much difference in the price of oil. I don't think it. I don't think it'll make hardly any difference in the price of gasoline. I think what they have to rely on, frankly, is to get the price of oil down and the price of gasoline down is more COVID. In Europe, apparently, resurgence as winter comes. In some states in this country, we have more COVID. Um, China apparently goes into regular kind of local lockdowns uh, that can't help oil demand, gasoline demand, diesel demand in China. So if oil prices are going to decline from the 70s in the near month and $65 out a year and a half, it'd probably be due to COVID rather than anything OPEC Plus does or anything with release of these barrels from strategic reserves. Part of the 50 million barrels is, I think 18 million barrels are scheduled to be sold. Part of the 32 million of the 50 million barrels is an exchange. In other words, someone picks up a barrel now, volunteers to replace it two years from now. So, you know, it's just, I, I think from a political point of view, the Biden administration had to be perceived as doing something, but it's not going to make too much difference from the price of 
gasoline. Maybe it'll help from a political point of view. Who knows? The other thing to comment on in oil and gas pricing is Russia. There's no question that the very high price for LNG in Europe has something to do with Russia wanting to get the Nord Stream 2 pipeline on. A German regulator has put the thing on the back burner because the Russians wanted to hold their interest in the pipeline, which comes down underneath the Baltic Sea into Germany. So it's an alternative to bringing gas through the Ukraine. They wanted to uh, hold it in a Swiss entity and the and the German regulator said, no, it had to be a German entity. I think what the Germans are trying to do is maintain some modicum of control over how that pipeline is run and, and how what its tariff structure is, that kind of stuff. I assume that Gazprom and the Russian government will back down and agree to terms, but the German regulator said was they were going to stop working on it until the thing got straightened out. So that's probably underway. Ukraine is, you know, interestingly enough, some significant part of the gas that comes from Russia uh, into Europe comes through the Ukraine. And of course, the European Union and uh, France, Germany, were considering having the Ukraine come into uh, come into uh, the EU and and to NATO, uh, which uh, Putin, I'm sure you've seen, says that well, the breakup of the former Soviet Union, including leave, losing the Ukraine, was the biggest one of the biggest uh, events, disappointing events in, uh, in Russian history. So, you know, he's going way back to the czars and, uh, something he's determined, uh, during his leadership to, uh, write. And of course, they did grab the Crimea. I suspect, I'm no expert in this, but from what I've read, I think his plan is to use what, what he's been using in the northern part of Ukraine, which is up against where it has a lot of Russian speaking, they've been using kind of special forces that don't have uniforms and whatnot. The difference now is they actually are moving uniform troops in and tanks and whatnot. I suspect they're going to grab part of northern Ukraine. And I don't think that the European Union, NATO, the U.S. can do a whole heck of a lot about it. Whether or not this interferes with gas flows through the Ukraine, I kind of don't think it will. Part of the Ukraine government revenues is the money they collect from that pipeline. Some things get really tight in the Ukraine where they're, you know, they're facing uh, losing pressure in their gas grid. They've been known to draft gas off that thing for their own use. So what with Gazprom later? I don't I think. That $30 LNG has become the new price in Europe. I think it will go down. I don't think we'll have a, you know, like a crisis where, you know, they can't keep the grid up. But it does call into question the speed at which the European Union or the U.S. or for that matter, China can transition to wind and solar and batteries. 
if you talk to people that have done this for a long time in the United States who are retired, and we actually did that as part of back a few months ago, the people who've been managing the grid, you know, the independent system operators, typically say that you can take wind solar batteries, renewables, up to about 30% of your power uh, supply, past 30%, they get extremely nervous. When you see the pronouncements from Glasgow and, and what elected officials or officials running for elections say, they're talking about the better part of 100%. It may be the case that that just is not achievable. Some commentators on this, like, for example, Bill Gates has had a couple of thoughtful articles on this, has said he thinks that 30 or 35% is about all that can be achieved, and it's going to take some technology to be able to do more. Much of his efforts in this area have been on trying to do cheaper, uh, less regulated nuclear. In fact, he and I think he has some company are putting a... Uh, a new nuclear plant or trying to get it licensed to go into Wyoming and the amount of capital up is $3 billion. I don't know what the commerciality of that is, but but the great thing about nuclear is it's baseload, just like coal or natural gas. Maybe that's the answer. Does this present an opportunity for traditional oil and gas production? Or put another way, would oil be $80 or $70 if there was a more encouragement for people to continue with fossil fuels, especially natural gas, as a, as a uh, transition fuel? I think so. But the, 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 certainly the politicians in office don't see it that way. And I think that what they're faced with is what is often called the missing money problem. In other words, who's going to pay for it? If you're a utility, you can talk all you want about reducing carbon emissions, but one of the things that has you on a vice is the average bill for the average customer in, your, in, your, in the area that you're serving can't go up by more than you know two or three percent a year. So, question: Who's going to pay that extra cost? Now, in California, and some of this is forest fires, but in California, the largest utility, PG&E, has been put into bankruptcy twice in the last decade. So, California, which tends to be very progressive and very committed to reducing CO2, ahead of all the other states. You know, the problem has been the stockholders and, and to a certain extent, the bondholders of their largest utility. So how this all settles up, I don't know. Do I, when I say that there's an opportunity for traditional oil and gas, I don't know. I mean, oil's another thing because it depends on the take up in electric cars. Again, hard to, you know, General Motors says they're going to stop making internal combustion engines in 10 years' time. You know, I, I, I don't know whether that's going to be feasible. I don't know whether market's going to permit that. And be a little clearer on power. We are going, no one is arguing that we're going to use less power in five years' time than we're using now. 
And there is a lot of evidence that you can take wind and solar up a little bit. Let's say combined, it, it all comes to 20% now. Maybe you take it 30%, but it just may not be feasible to take it more than that. Will that create a higher price for natural gas? Maybe. And with that, I've gone through uh, more than my allotted time. We want to get to uh, Mike's commentary on uh, things that are more modern and interesting and, and technical. I will say that in, in introducing Mike's remarks here, that I believe that the interest rates will be higher. The timing's uncertain, but I think that interest rates, there'll be a real rate of interest It may approach 2%, given the fact that there are more borrowers than there are supply of funds in time. Once Federal Reserve policy is adjusted to be closer to normal, you, I think a reasonable expectation for the 10-year bond is 2% real rate. And of course, now the real rate is like negative two or something or less, depending on what the inflation rate plus the inflation rate and the impact on everything we own. I mean, residential houses, stock market values, everything will be impacted by that. But with that, Mike's done a fair amount of work in this area, trying to look at the companies that he specialized in and the impact of higher interest rates. With that, we'll turn it over to Mike. Hi, Hunt. Thank you. So, so the thing that, that keeps popping up, you're probably, if you watch any of the news, it's been mentioned before that if the, the interest rates go up, we're going to expect to see a, a reduction in asset values in the, in the public markets. The fundamental reason for that is that as you have to especially for companies where most of the cash flows are farther out in the future, you have to discount them. A small change in interest rates has a larger effect. In, in this case, it's effectively treated like duration, uh, as you would with a bond, more so with a high-growth company that maybe isn't generating very much cash flow in the present. So what I did is I looked at software as a services company going back to 2010, and I compared the change in the median multiple. In this study, I used the market cap versus the annual recurring revenue. And what I found was actually quite interesting. So the overall median for this, for this data set, and by the way, I'll put this in the email so that if you want to look at it a little more in detail, it'll be there. The on average, these stocks are actually positively correlated up until 2021 with the uh, with changes in the interest rate. It flips the other way in 2021. The point that I'm trying to make here is that there's a narrative going on in the market that this is the thing that's most important that's driving the stock, and it's kind of coming to fruition, and the stocks are reacting to it. I sort of think it might be overblown. What Mike is pointing to is market cap of a company relative to revenues. And the reason that's used for these software as a service businesses is that your your marketing expense and your R&D expense chews up 
most of your cash flow. So of the oh, 15 or 20 companies Mike has reviewed in the past few months, not that many of them are actually generating cash flow. In order to kind of come up and with a cash flow analysis, add back part like half of the marketing expense and half of the R&D expense, and that gives you a free cash yield. The long-term treasury bond is, you know, 1.60%, and the inflation rate is 5%, the negative yield is a minus 3. Guess what I was saying is somehow hard to hard to predict the timing, but sometime in the next 12, 18, 24, 36 months, the Federal Reserve will stop buying bonds. They'll taper. will go to quantitative tightening rather than quantitative easing. And so the federal balance sheet, let's say it's $28 trillion of debt outstanding to the federal government. Uh, the federal balance sheet now is around $8 trillion. It was $4 trillion before they learned about quantitative easing was about $2 trillion. As that balance sheet comes down, the you're going to need more bond buyers. You need bond buyers not only for the debt the government has to sell, you're going to need bond buyers for the debt securities that the Federal Reserve will be selling. And now that Jerome Powell is has been recommended by the president, has to be confirmed by the Senate, he is not going to have this possibility of being retired Fed chairman rather than the Fed chairman hanging over his head. I think it's much more likely than unlikely that the interest rate will be something like 2% plus the inflation rate in three years' time. Question, if these software as a service businesses are selling for eight times revenue. And let's say if you accept the fact you can add back half of marketing expense, half of R&D expense, trading for, say, a 2%, 3% free cash yield. In other words, 3% would be 30 times free cash flow, adjusted free cash flow. With interest rates moving from 1.6% to, say, 2% plus, say, 3% inflation or 5%. So your loan bond is now, you, you go from a negative yield of 3% to a positive yield of 2%, plus, say, inflation's running 3%. So you're at 5%. Will people still buy something that's growing at 30 times free cash flow or 3% free cash yield. Maybe, but there's not going to be much, very much room for error. If, if it turns out your growth rate starts to slow or you don't grow out of your marketing expense and your, and your R&D expense, in other words, theoretically building a business, your revenue should grow faster than your marketing and your R&D expense. There's, you know, the revaluation of a company like that could be, you know, it can be trading for $80 and, you know, a month later trading for 30 I mean, I, I, 
don't know whether I'm making this comparison too dramatic, but with that, I'm going to turn it back to Mike. So I, I think you're, well, you're right from a fundamental valuation perspective, right? Once if you're discounting at that higher rate, especially if you're doing it over the course of decades, you, you go from two to four, two to five, it's going to be a significant impact, 30%, 40 50% on the company valuation. The thing that I suspect that I don't have much to back this up on, but I suspect that a lot more hedge fund investors are long SaaS companies and maybe short the 10-year as a hedge. And that's, that's, that's what I was trying to explain, showing that the 2021 correlation is dramatically different than the prior 10 years. So we may be just in a different situation when it comes to these companies. And because of that, does it change the way these stocks will react to interest rates going forward? I don't really know, but, but the suspicion is, is yes, and maybe it makes it even more fragile if you have a bunch of highly leveraged hedge funds um, invested in them. One of the interesting things about the treasury bond market, which I find kind of alarming, is who is buying those bonds at 1.5%? In other words, if, if, if Mike and his partnership or me and my personal investing had a big short position on in 10-year bonds at 160 I can understand that. I mean, if you think, hey, inflation is high, the Fed Reserve is going to taper, the government's going to continue to run large deficits, so they have to sell this paper. I can understand the short position. What I don't understand is a lot of investors, hedge fund and 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 you know and family offices and whatnot are doing something quite different, which I don't think you'll find Mike or myself doing, and that is that borrowing in the very short market, the repo market, which is, you know, Fed funds rate is set at, you know, under 25 basis points. So the repo market, which meets every morning or gets all their transactions done every morning, is borrowing overnight from, in effect, these excess reserves. And it's big, it's $2 trillion. At various times, in the fall of 08, in March of 2020, uh, it came completely unglued because one investment approach would be to buy the bonds at 160 and finance it in the repo market at say 30 basis points. So you're making 1.3 percentage points on that transaction, and because you can use a great deal of leverage, because the treasury bonds are considered to be great collateral, you can like do that 20 times over. So let's say you're making a point, 20 points, that becomes a 20% return. Hey, we talk about making 15% annually, doubling your money in five years. Why not do it with a structured deal like this? So my concern from a, you know, is there a 
black swan out there in the way treasury bonds are held is how much on a worldwide basis, not just, you know, U.S.-based investors, is held based on that carry trade. And if it starts to go very badly, like, let's say you're making 1.3% because you're borrowing in repo market and you're getting 160, so you're making 130 basis points. If all of a sudden that bond goes down by 10 points and you start to get margin calls, uh, and, and it will go down a lot, you know, because 10 years, if interest rates go up, it goes down, and people start to worry. The thing about the repo market, if you're a participant in the repo market, is if it's Wednesday and I decide I'm nervous and I just don't want to make any, like I, I can decide it's, it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon, Eastern time, almost 4 o'clock, I can just decide I don't want to lend tomorrow. I, you know, it's not like I have to go and say I want my bonds paid off, or I I want my uh, I want I want to have my security redeemed. You just don't lend, and so if enough people in that two trillion or whatever it is, maybe it, maybe it's maybe it's a multiple two trillion, just say I'm not going to invest tomorrow. You have full chaos now. What happens when that? What what has happened when that happened in the fall of '08, and it happened in March of '20? The Federal Reserve, in a coordinated basis with other central banks in the world, come to the rescue. And basically, what they say is, if you own those bonds, you can bring them in, even if you're not a bank. You can bring them in as collateral, and we'll lend money again. If we were back in the late 19th century or before there was a Federal Reserve. It would have had to be, you know, people like J.P. Morgan would have to get together in a drawing room after dinner and do something like that. Now we have central banks. I'm sure that central banking system will come to the rescue. But what happens in the aftermath of that is those bonds, those 10-year bonds, will be repriced. I mean, there will be a reaction. So could you go from... One six on that one point six zero on the ten year bond to a much higher number in a fairly short period of time. I think so, because the central banks can rescue the people that have lost their repo market, but they those people who have those bonds will be encouraged to sell them. They will not be able to hold them. And you could get a substantial gap up when you're you know, software of a service, let's say if once you get to be more mature, let's say you're Snowflake or something and you're more mature and you're generating free cash flow. Well, let's say you're Google or Amazon, you're generating free cash flow. You can take a 2 or 3% free cash yield if your cash flow, free cash flow is growing 15% a year. But if all of a sudden it doesn't, it's clear for business conditions or whatnot, that you can't do that 15% or you have to spend more capital so your free cash flow isn't. You can get a substantial revaluation of your business and, you know, it's just a risk. That doesn't mean to say that if you have a dozen stocks that you're really comfortable with, as I have or Mike has or whatnot, it doesn't mean you go out and sell them. It's just please, 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 as we get towards the end of the year here, 
look at each one of the companies, consider how much risk there is of not being able on the things that are trading at low free cash yields, not being able to continue that growth of, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15% a year in free cash flow. Forget growth of revenues. It's got to be growth of free cash flow. Please look at those companies. And if you're concerned at all, you know, you can sell half. That way, if the company continues to progress, you're only half wrong. But if this is a very good time towards year end to, you know, review the dozen companies you have. Now, if you're sitting there with cash and you feel underinvested, one of the things you could do is kind of be patient here under the theory that some of the things you're interested in, you could buy a part position. And if somehow there's a significant drawdown or, you know, revaluation of the company, you have a chance to invest on much better terms. And with that, Mike, what if I left out? I've, I've monopolized way too much of our 30 minutes. But what if I left out? Well, we didn't talk about crypto. We promised to talk in, in this concept of potential inflation and whatnot. Mike promised that Mike and I promised to talk about cryptocurrencies next week. With that, everyone have a good Thanksgiving, and uh, we'll uh, we'll be on on with you uh, same time next Wednesday. Take care. Uh, you too, Mike. And Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.